this is Anjina Karmakar and David Seike from Healthcare Clarity. Hi, how are you going? Hey, David. Um, we're also recording from different areas, so there's a bit of a time lapse, guys. Sorry. But tonight, we are very excited to invite our third guest on our show. It's Dr. Amy Inns. Hi, Amy. Hi, thanks for having Thank me. Thank you so much for giving us that time. You know, I know that we have all got family commitments and we're recording at a you know interesting time frame. So thank you so much. Now, Amy is a medical practitioner in Australia and she has created a company called The Burnout Project. Is that right? I have, yes. Fantastic. Well, we might just dwell into it. Um, so tell us about it. What's it about? And tell us about a little bit about yourself. Yeah, so about myself, so as you say, I'm from Australia, I'm from Tasmania, so the island right down the bottom. Nice. And I uh, run the Burnout Project as well as I've got five young children, so that keeps me pretty Did busy on the side. Did you say five? And, uh, yes, five. <laughs> wow, yeah. awesome. Uh, so are I know you, all are about you burnt burnout out from myself. I'm not now, but um, <laughs> asked me a few years ago, and um, wow. that, that's why it all started. <laughs> right. Man, I thought uh, I'm doing good with one, but anyway. Oh, look, I wow, don't know. I think mean. one's harder in some ways. <laughs> true. That is true. True, true, true. Yeah. Wow, so, okay. so, so I started to say, because um, I burned out myself, you know, having mm. lots of young children. I was um, studying for exams at the time. I was the breadwinner for the family. Uh, we had other family members who are unwell who are supporting so I think like the story for a lot of people it's just that timing you have so many different things that all go on at the same time sure. and uh, it was all too much and so I really struggled at that point to find the help that I needed and figure out what to do and so that took me quite a long time mm. and so I then wanted to be able to help other people I suppose to be able to do that a little bit more quickly and smoothly and efficiently or ideally prevent it because I think like most people we've um you know I'd seen so many people struggling with it my first experience of that was before I even thought about studying medicine when I was in high school and one of my good friends, her older brother was a surgical registrar and mm -hmm. he uh, died by suicide. And so that was my first experience of just seeing uh, what being a doctor can be like and that it's certainly not all roses. Um, it's not, is it? It's certainly a very big shock to the system when we hear these stories, isn't it, Amy? Mm. Yeah, and different to that public perception, I suppose, and maybe our own ideas before we started medicine. We have very different ideas of what it's going to be like. Wow, God, that's that's a very sad story to hear about that. But I think most of us have probably had someone, you know, friends, relatives or someone that, that's been touched by suicide or, or burnout. Um, wow, okay. So where, where to from there? So you, when did this, so you, you were inspired to do this because of your, obviously your personal experiences. Um, so what, what exactly does Burnout Project do? How does it work? Yeah, so, so it was because of my own experience, I had this developing interest in the area, I suppose, over the years leading up to that and just seeing uh, so many of my colleagues who came into things so enthusiastically, I suppose, and then watching them over the years and seeing them really struggle and things change. And at that point, I was more just curious and concerned. And then when I was working as a GP registrar, that was when I realized how many of my patients were struggling with the same kind of thing. And it was just sort of all these life pressures and they didn't really fit into a neat category where you could 
diagnose them with a mental illness or necessarily easily get them to a psychologist or anything like that, but they really needed help and they often felt like there was nothing anyone could do. It was just all this stuff that didn't have solutions so that often put put things off really late in terms of coming to seek help so I'd already been thinking about these ideas a, a little bit and had that interest there and helping those patients and then when I got to that point where I had my own experience that's where I really thought you know I, I really want to look more into this area and, and really think about what I can do and so the very first idea I had was how can I try to get people to engage in getting help earlier? And one thing I'd noticed with my patients is that it was often not them who acknowledged it first. It was often the spouse or somebody else around them who really noticed that they were struggling. So it'd be somebody saying, you know, I'm really worried about my husband when he comes in for his appointment tomorrow, you know, can mm. you, can it you often is the it case, out? <laughs> yeah, it, it often is the case, you know, in clinical practice, we see that all the time, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, so, so I had this idea of these burnout packages and so I thought, well, when somebody's worried about somebody else, they can send them a package. It's doing something nice because people feel so helpless. You know, what can I do when I'm seeing these people I care about with this struggle? So I made these packages that had a few nice things in there but then also a resource in there. So I wrote a short, really practical book that can go in there so that these people would have something that they can start off actually doing something about. So that was where it started and I still do that. So I still have the burnout packages in my book, uh, but now it's expanded to a whole lot of other things to help support people and organisations because I, th- I think it's so important, isn't it, that we look at those, oh, that bigger picture, those systems, all those things that are actually causing it as well as what we can do as individuals. Well, this is, you know, this is why the uh, APAS exists and this is why GP Clarity exists, you know. We're all about the system and the bigger picture too. Correct, yeah. Yeah, and and I love that part of my job of of really actually sitting down with people who care because that's that first step, isn't it, having somebody relatively high up in an organisation who actually genuinely wants to make a change and is willing to listen and look at what they can do and, and really think about things. Oh, absolutely. We've all heard that term burnout, but can you break that down and and tell us exactly what it means sort of physiologically and and mentally? Yeah, I think we all often mean different things by it, don't we? And unsurprisingly, because it was first described about 50 years ago and over the years there have been quite a lot of different definitions. I think the most recent one I'm aware of is the World Health Organization one, uh, which I think came out two or three years ago. So that talks about burnout being the result of chronic stress which has not been successfully managed in the workplace. So they particularly talk about it in the workplace, although, of course, we can see exactly the same phenomenon in someone who's studying or volunteering or caring for someone Yeah, in or life. parenting. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so any kind of major role we have in life, we can burn out in. But for their purposes, you know, they're talking about workplace. Um, and we describe these three key features when we talk about burnout. So the first one being exhaustion, which is pretty self-explanatory, which is just tired all the time, low motivation, things like that. The second one being depersonalization. So this is a like an emotional detachment, we kind of get a bit um, cynical and irritated and less capacity for empathy towards other people. And then reduced efficacy is what they often call this third kind of part that we see. And this is where we just start to feel like, what's the point in going to work? Are we actually achieving anything here? Are we making a difference? Am I any good at my job? So those are the three main things that get described and 
people can experience them to different degrees. You know, someone might be very high on the exhaustion, where somebody else might be very high on the low efficacy. You, you know, Amy, just listening to you describe what burnout is, I can identify so many aspects of my personal life and my colleagues within even our workplace or other you know arenas where you know we're at that verge you know because healthcare is at a crisis at the moment and I can we can all relate to this and I guess one of the things that I really um, that inspired I think both David and I to really get into this sort of field of trying to help everybody on a bigger sort of point of view is the fact that a lot of clinicians tend to be isolated I think and I was just wondering from your experience if you could comment around, you know, how you've seen clinicians be isolated and how important collaborating, you know, with peers and, and having that support network is from your perspective. Yeah, I think that isolation is a really interesting one and it, it comes from so many different reasons. For some people, it's that they've gone away from their home and all their social connections right from medical school or from when they start internships so they've sort of left and have to create those new friendships and relationships which isn't always easy just anyway as an adult to form those new relationships let alone when you're working a really busy job and you don't potentially have much time to actually invest in those things and then there's people who um, move to rural areas for work and obviously that's even more isolating, particularly if you're in a role where it feels like half the town or community is either your patient or your colleague and so who's left that's to be right. friends with, <laughs> those kinds yeah. of things. Um, then we see um, it going into private practice or people in general practice. Again, you get that isolation where you're often around a group of people, but you're kind of just in your own room seeing your patients on your own all day and you don't necessarily get that teamwork and collaboration side of things. And then one of the other big areas that I see it in is people once they become a consultant, you know, they've finally actually got their fellowship. So they've spent all these years being part of a team and then they finally get to the top, I guess. And that can feel really isolating because all of a sudden you don't have that support network around you. You don't have someone who can go and ask perhaps so easily about those tricky cases and just talk things through with, or you just you question yourself about whether I should, is that going to make me look bad? I should know this by now because I'm there, supposed to know so everything now. There's so much pressure, right? Even, even mm. at the top to the bottom, there's so much pressure. And it's also about com- competition and you know yeah. self-image and it's just incredible, isn't it? The pressure is, that we go through. And it's yeah. so sad that we have to have that competition side of things but it actually it is a reality you know especially for certain training programs if you want to get there you actually have to think about that stuff and it doesn't make it easy to oh it's even in the curriculum right like some of these Mm. training programs actually sort of groom you to be uh, have a mental state like that you know yeah yeah and 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 that that aspect of imposter syndrome can get to people as well the stress associated with imagining that you're not ready for the work that you're doing and i think it gets drummed into us or reinforced over the years too like medicine i think self-selects people who are very often not always i'm being very stereotypical here but often quite perfectionist people who really set themselves their super high standards and have those really high expectations of themselves and other people Um, And then we get trained by all these people who are highly specialised experts in their field and we kind of build this idea in our head that, well, when I'm a doctor, I also will know everything about everything like these people do, forgetting that they actually only know about their own area and don't know (laughs) the other areas. Um, But then that whole way through, it's, it's, it's just often that culture that we're 
all our faults and those things that we don't know are pointed out to us so strongly and we really don't get a lot of professional recognition of the things that we do know and the things that we're doing well for a lot of people anyway I'm sure um, there are people who've had good experiences with that but on the whole I think we reinforce that imposter syndrome side of things it's just general sort of words of affirmation and recognition isn't it it's not the recognition of just getting paid or you know just having that stature of a you know medical practitioner or a health practitioner but it's just that generalized sort of being kind to each other you know having each other's back sort of thing isn't it Absolutely. And even the getting paid side of things, I think for a lot of doctors, isn't even so much about the money. It's what that represents that, you know, I value you. I value this extra two hours you stayed today kind of thing, as opposed to necessarily that money that you take home from it. Sure. Well, you know, APAS actually represents and, you know, our members are actually spanned across 17 craft members. So, Amy, I don't know if you've looked into our organisation, but we, we obviously do cater for, you know, nurses to paramedics to pharmacists to doctors to everybody, anybody that's actually in health practitioner, sort of health professional area. Where, where, where do you see your vision is in terms of your future and, and you know, how you're going to be developing your your uh, company and your project and also I think from a listener point of view a lot of us have this uh, scare I suppose of um, you know are we you know the whole mental health um, uh, mandatory reporting right just that whole scariness of okay do we actually if we acknowledge that we've got a mental health issue we're burning out or whatever then are these sort of organizations gonna end up reporting us you know um to APRA so some reassurance around that and what your future visions are and what your plans are yeah um two big questions all right I'll start with the first (laughs) first. (laughs) (laughs) just summed Um, it up a bit (laughs) my vision for the future um look I, I guess my ultimate vision for the future is to work myself out of a job and that if I can work with enough organisations that people don't have their struggles and I'm not needed anymore, then um, that would be a, a wonderful thing, although that might be a little bit of work for me to find something else to do instead. Um, but in the process of getting there, um, so I've got these two elements of what I'm doing. So on the one hand, I really want to be working with these organisations. So often I'll be working at several levels. So um, particularly if I'm doing a, a, a you know a, bit, a big job with a big organisation, then we'll be working with the staff, with the managers, with the executives, looking at how how do people manage burnout? How would we identify it? How as managers can they support their staff? How from a systems kind of policy perspective can we change things? And often they're not massive things. You know, often people think that the solutions to these things are going to be incredibly expensive or incredibly onerous, um, but they're not. And those benefits you get from them in terms of not just that employee well-being, but the organisation, you know, reducing absentees and presenteeism, turnover, um, impact on profit, reputation, um, workers' compensation claims. Uh, there's such a, a, a broad impact that actually dealing with it has. So that's the one side of things that I really want to continue with and, and finding those people who really want to make a difference and helping them to do that. And then on the other side, really supporting individuals. And so at the moment, I do that f- through a few different ways. One of those is individual counselling. So people who are in Australia, uh, I can see over telehealth and Often I end up seeing people who are in rural areas because they find it really difficult to access good care that's nearby. But, you know, really I see people everywhere 
around the country. Um, and then I run a range of sort of workshops. I've got the burnout packages. Um, I've also got a, a community sort of a group support one, and that's one that people have really enjoyed because we we go through different topics and learn new strategies and things like that. So I'm sort of teaching skills, but then we also meet in these really small groups to discuss it and actually support one another. And people love that because again, it's getting rid of that isolation to a certain degree. They're not just talking to me and I'm telling them, you know, this is really common. A lot of people feel the same way. They're actually seeing that kind of thing for themselves as they hear other people and their experiences and enjoy that opportunity to give as well you know they're there as part of that group and they receive a lot of support and information and resources but they also get that um, sense of fulfillment I suppose of also being able to contribute to somebody else's well-being through the way they encourage them in those calls and things so yeah they're those two sides of things at the moment I probably see oh maybe 80% of the people I see are probably healthcare workers of some kind um, but I'm getting more and more people from other industries as well. Just it's often through who you know and who those sort of networks are, I suppose. So because I've started off mostly in healthcare networks, that's where most people have come from. Um, and, and, and I'd like to expand Brilliant. to those other industries because we, we, it's a massive issue in healthcare, but really at the moment it's a massive issue it's everywhere. everywhere. It's, it's, yeah, it's, it's big for everyone. I've, uh, speaking from experience, I've, I've seen plenty of people who are guilty of presenteeism but i how can you identify it and and how can you sort of raise it to the right channels as an employee to say that you know that this person might not be putting in everything that they've got and it, it may be dangerous for the team or it may be more productive for the business if um, if we were to address this yeah, good question. Yeah, so presenteeism. So this is as opposed to absenteeism where people are not well and um, don't show up to work. We're talking about when they do show up to work, but they're not as productive as they normally would be. Um, how do we raise that? I suppose, as you say, if it's a safety kind of issue, then you might raise it about somebody else and sort of, you know, let somebody know. And I suppose a, a good way to do that can be out of concern, you know, that you're noticing this person... Um, and perhaps instead of, I think they're kind of slacking off, <laughs> sort of a, yeah, maybe maybe they're not okay um, and just raising that because maybe maybe you work with them a little bit more closely than somebody else and so other people might not have noticed. So I think that's always worth saying something about it. I think the onus is also often on those uh, managers that sort of part of that role is to be getting to know your team enough that you can pick up on some of those signs and so really looking out for changes from normal so do they seem more tired than normal are they showing up a bit late or trying to leave a bit early um are they sometimes it can not look like a loss of productivity it might be that they're not taking breaks they're working through or they're working overtime because sometimes that can be that they're sort of trying to compensate for that, that they might be feeling I'm less productive than normal. And so therefore they try to sort of, yeah, as I say, compensate for that by sort of pushing through and, and keeping on going. Um, I know a lot of practice managers who are guilty of that currently with the, with the way things are in healthcare at the moment. Yeah, and, and there's so much to do. And this is it's a tricky job as a manager too because... On the one hand, you've got to be looking out for those people who 
are getting that drop in performance, but you also have to be really watching the ones who look like they're doing really great because the problem is the ones that are doing really great are often then the ones that get asked to do more because they're the reliable ones. You know, if you want something Mm. done, you know who to ask. So they kind of get things piled on and they're really perfectionist about it. So they work, 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 and they'll do overtime because I really got to make sure I get it done and I don't want to let anyone down. And they're those people who might be just on that brink. And if you don't kind of catch that early, then they're going to tip over into that loss of productivity or kind of crashing side of things. It's it's having those very difficult conversations, isn't it? Because it's that balance of not denigrating them for the good job that they're actually doing um, but also understanding that you know you're trying to actually protect them and the organization too you know, for of that sort of certain adverse outcome from these effects you know wow what, a, what an amazing thing that's awesome I just wanted to ask how important is it to be uh, on the front foot with this sort of thing to identify it early or even before it is even an issue just to make sure that people are supported the way they need so they don't cross into this this threshold where they might be becoming burnt out yeah so important I and mean, it's like anything the earlier we catch it the earlier we do something about then the easier and quicker it is to to actually resolve the issue um, and it's a bit like healthcare in general, you know, if we can prevent something that obviously that's better than a, a cure, but yeah, it's also yeah. hard to often get the resources to do that. You know, if you've got a healthy workforce to go, right, I'm going to invest the energy into keeping these people healthy. Um people who often don't have that motivation to do it until that problem's there. But I think you know, ideally we would really be getting everybody having these skills and strategies um, to be able to manage their own side of things as much as we can because this is always a two-way street. There's things that we can do ourselves in terms of how our brain responds to those things that happen at work, those stresses that are going to come up. Like there's, there's so much that goes on there. And then as well, having organisations preventing it by actually looking at all those kind of risk factors. But in the real world, we're all busy and time poor and, yeah, we don't have that motivation. We've got organisations who've got funding constraints or resourcing issues, can't get enough staff so other people get overworked. So all those things are at play there. But as you say, ideally catching it as early as possible. And before I forget, I want to go back to the APRA question. Yes. (laughs) That's all right. (laughs) Very important. Um, Because I think that is uh, such a big issue because part of that catching it early is obviously people feeling like they can say something about it. And when we've got that fear that we're going to get reported, then that's a a huge barrier. So uh, there was quite a bit around, maybe it was about a year or so ago, um, talking about what are those actual thresholds to have to report to APRA. And for starters, burnout is not a mental illness. So we don't even need to worry about that side of things necessarily, although often there's a also a diagnosis of depression or anxiety and other things going on um but even if we're talking about mental illness then just having the diagnosis doesn't require an APRA report we're really just talking about situations where there's a significant risk of harm so this is going to be somebody who um is impaired in their role because of whatever's going on that they're um potentially not engaging with treatment there's, there's got to be a really good reason for you to think that 
patients are at imminent harm really it's um and and i think the the most recent things that i read were talking about you know it also can't just be a vague belief or some kind of gossip you know i heard through somebody else that somebody else is um depressed at the moment or, or something like Correct. that you know you you've really got to know what's going on and you've you've really got to know that that they're not engaging in treatment and um that yeah, there's this real risk there. So most people should feel quite safe that they're not going to be reported. And I would really encourage people to have that conversation with their doctor because there very well could be quite a lot of doctors out there. You know, we're all trying to keep up with so many things that are changing all the time. There might be people who haven't revisited those APRA reporting requirements recently and might have this sort of belief that somebody told them 20 years ago that everyone who's got a mental illness needs reporting or something like that. So I think having those open discussions is good. so important, Amy, that you make this point because, you know, as an organisation that helps advocate for these sort of people, um, we can't emphasise it strong enough to say that, look, it's a very narrow spectrum of people that actually need meet those mandatory requirements. Mm. It's very sort of not clear but it it is very narrow and it's not a situation where you if you have a mental health issue and you're being managed properly and you've got a you know an issue that's being managed by your general practitioner etc that is not a mandatory reporting scenario and we often see so many of our colleagues that are petrified by it so thank you so much for making that point um Mm. and amy what a what an amazing job you're doing you know it's it's very inspirational to watch people like yourselves i mean we, we need to multiply people like yourselves, you know. We do, we have to have each other's back and kudos to you. You know, we've got five kids and you've got a whole career and everything and you're doing such a beautiful thing for others. And thank you so much for doing it, you know, and please do continue to do it. I wish you all the success. I, I think, you know, you will achieve your ultimate goal. You know, it might take time, but you will achieve it, though. Mm-hmm. I, I believe in that. So thank you so much. And guys, you know, whoever is listening out there, honestly, you are not alone. That's the biggest message that as, you know, as the proprietors of Healthcare Clarity, this is what we want to tell people. that You are not alone. Um, mental health and um, these sort of professional, personal developmental issues are the mainstay stuff that we, David and I really want to talk about, you know, because these are the icky yeah. points that we can't really talk about with our family mm-hmm. or friends. So really appreciate your time, Amy. And um if you guys have, those of you that are listening, if this triggers any emotions or any issues, please do reach out to general practitioners and, you know, people like Amy, you know, the Burnout Project to seek out and get some help. You know, please don't think that you're alone. So thank you very much, guys, for your time. And uh, we do publish every Sunday. And I would love to have you back, Amy, on our show as you progress in your journey. And uh, thank you so much for everything that you do. Thank thank you you. so much for having me. And yeah, thanks for all the work that both of you are doing with getting these messages out there as well. Awesome. We do what we can. (laughs) Yes, that's right. David, we will talk soon again. Yes. You have a good night too. Bye, Abby. All right. Bye, guys. Bye, guys.